So we are in the book of 2 Samuel. It's really one book, 1 and 2 Samuel, in two volumes. Uh, it just got split up as the way, you know, history works. When you're switching from scrolls to books, you kind of split things up in different places. And we've been in this series for quite some time. Today is week number 21. And the last few weeks of the book of Samuel, the second Samuel, I would like to speed up. And I'd like to get through the rest of these pretty quickly because there's one major overarching story that we need to hit in the whole rest of the chapters, all the rest of the chapters. The problem is it's a convoluted story. And so if all of you all read it in advance, we might be able to get through the rest of the book in only two more weeks. But as it is, I've kind of got it split up into maybe three or four, and so we'll just have to see, you know, how that works. But today, we have to zoom in on two chapters, 2 Samuel chapter 11 and 12. And they are the absolute lowest point of David's life. These are the two chapters that make everybody say, wait a minute, we were told that David was a man after God's own heart. And 2 Samuel 11 and 12, particularly 11, reveals to us that David was a man after other things too. This whole series of messages is called Pursuit because we are analyzing the things that people pursue in their lives, the things that we pursue in our lives. And all along in the background, there is a God who is pursuing us. And while we're chasing after all these other things, there's a God who's pursuing us. And in chapter 11 of 2 Samuel, we begin to see David pursue something that is not God. And we've seen glimpses of this before. We've seen hints of it before. But today, it all comes to an absolute peak. Now, the big question for us in light of last week, is what is David going to do with all this newfound power? You remember, he was a shepherd boy, and he killed Goliath, and then he was a harpist in the king's court, and then he was on the run because the king was trying to kill him, and now David is the king over the whole land. Now David has power unimaginable. We have even been told that David has conquered more land in the ancient world than almost any other empire in ancient history before the Greeks showed up. David's empire was huge. And there was this passage we read last week that gave us an indication of why David was so successful. It's in 2 Samuel chapter 8. I'm going to put that verse up on the screen here. 2 Samuel chapter 8. Let's go to that. And it says, The Lord gave David victory wherever he went. The Lord gave David victory wherever he went. That's such an incredible thing to have God in heaven just kind of Make sure everywhere you walk, the path is littered with victory. It's such an amazing thing, and we find that's the reason why David was so successful. The Lord gave him victory, but there was this other piece. It, it, it came wherever he went. And last week in chapter 10, we began to see something that was wrong. And it shows up in the chapters 10, 11, and 12 in the contrast between two verses. Two verbs, excuse me. The first verb is the one we see in this verse, wherever David went. And the second verb is in the next verse, in 2 Samuel 10, where it says, David thought, I will show kindness to Hanun, son of Nahush, just as his father showed kindness to me. So David sent a delegation. 
And these are the two verbs that you need to be paying attention to throughout these chapters, chapters 10, 11, and 12, because of two things. One, linguistically, it's really interesting that in English, went and sent are very similar to each other. You know, there's only one consonant that separates the two of them. In the ancient Hebrew world, that wasn't the same thing. I mean, the two words were completely different from each other. But what you need to know is that the word sent shows up 23 times in these three chapters. In the rest of the books of Samuel, it's way more rare than that. But in these three chapters, it shows up 23 times. And that is because in order for a person to send someone, this person has to have power. This is important. In order for me to send someone, I have to have power over that person. And if I am going to send a message, then I have to have so much power that my word carries weight without my presence. If I send a message or if I send a person, that means I'm the one with some power. And in this story, you are going to see time and time again, the word send show up when there is a person who is exercising power. Now, the question for you and me is, are they going to exercise it well? Are they going to exercise their power correctly? Are they going to exercise their power in a way that would honor God? And particularly, how is David going to exercise his power. This is important to us because I'll just give you the quick bullet points of what we're going to see. In this story, we're going to see David send a bunch of people to war but not go himself. He's going to stay back in Jerusalem. In Jerusalem, he is going to go up onto his roof and he is going to see a woman bathing because he's in a palace and he can look down at all kinds of things. And he's going to see a woman bathing, and this is a time before blinds and curtains like we have. And so he could see this woman bathing, and he sends a man to get the woman. And she comes back, and he sleeps with her, and she gets pregnant, and then David goes off and he kills her husband. And then the story continues on from there. It's the story of David and Bathsheba. And I'm giving you the highlights right now at the beginning, because I need to say something else by way of introduction. This last week, I was on Twitter for some reason. I just have one of my web tabs open to Twitter, and every now and then I look over at it when I'm thinking I should probably get involved in this social media world, and then I decide better of of my time, and I don't. But this last week, I was on Twitter, and I saw on the side, one particular day, a topic was trending, and the topic was David and Bathsheba. And I'm like, oh my goodness, it's God's timing. You know, on Twitter, it's trending. This last week, it's trending, David and Bathsheba. And I'm like, okay, let's look through some of these tweets of all these people talking about David and Bathsheba and what they're talking about. And I kid you not, I was flabbergasted because 50% of the people on the tweet sphere, whatever that is, 50% of the people out there were talking about how Bathsheba was guilty with David, of adultery. And the other 50% of the people were like, David raped Bathsheba. Okay? And uh, I was surprised that there was a debate because the text of the Scripture is 100% clear on what's going on. 
And the text of Scripture is 100% clear that Bathsheba was not one of those people who was doing something wrong in the story. In fact, I want to show you because the narrator of this story is so precise with his language that there is no way to conclude anything other than by modern definitions of the word, David raped Bathsheba. And what I want you to do is I want you to track it with me to find the descent into evil by this man, David, who was supposed to be a man after God's own heart. So we're jumping right into it at the beginning. Chapter 11, verse 1. In the spring, at the time when kings go off to war, David sent, there you go, we're already into it. In the time, in the spring, and what is important to know for you people about the spring, the narrator is trying to make sure we have all the information we need to make all the conclusions we need to make about this particular situation. And the narrator begins, in the spring, when kings go off to war, David, the proper verb there is went. The correct verb is went. The actual verb is sent. And you can see we are already beginning to descend. Because this is in the spring. And this is the time when kings go to war. Either David is not a king, or David is somehow violating his power to do a thing that kings should not do. And David is sending. Now, to you and me, this makes absolutely perfect sense. Once I get to a place of power, I'm going to leverage that power to keep myself safe as much as possible. And if I can send someone else to do my work, I'm going to send someone else to do my work. You better believe it. I totally sympathize with David here. David is the king. He's arrived. Now's the time not to go. Now's the time to send. And so he does. David sent Joab out with the king's men, and look at this, the whole Israelite army minus one very important warrior, David himself. They destroyed the Ammonites and besieged Rabbah, but icing on the cake, David remained in Jerusalem. The narrator of the story is doing a lot of work in this first verse to make sure you and I are very clear that David is doing the wrong thing, that David is abusing his power. This is important because what happens when you gain power is you begin to get a mindset that I'm going to call exceptional thinking. Exceptional thinking is when you think of yourself as the exception to some rule. Your power has given you the ability to be the exception to some rule. I learned not too long ago about a particular thing that I was fascinated by. Did you know, I don't know if this is really the truth, I don't know if this is all the places in the whole world or in America or in Indiana or if it's just with our police force or other police forces, but this is what someone told me. Someone who was in the police world. They said, if you get pulled over for speeding, and you are a relative, like close relative of a cop, they will not give you a ticket. 
As long as you can identify that you are a relative of a police officer, the police officer who pulled you over will not give you a ticket. The first time I heard that story, I immediately called all of my family members to see which one of them could start joining the police force. Because, you know, if you can get, if you can get a get-out-of-speeding ticket-for-free card, I want to get that card. But the, the thing is, in, when you leverage some sort of power, for personal special treatment. I'm giving you the definition today that that is abusing it. When you use power for special treatment, that's abusing it. Power is never given to you for you. Power is only given to you for some other cause. Power is given by God to people for other people. To people for some other cause. Not to you for you, to you for someone else. And so anytime you use power for your own special treatment, that's abusing it. And that's what David is doing here. He is using his power to get other people to do the work that God has specifically told him was his job. He's the king. And it's now spring And in the spring, it's the time when kings go to war. The narrator is trying to really drive this point home. David remained in Jerusalem. Verse 2. One evening, David got up from his bed and walked around on the roof of his palace. There's There's another little hint there. There's a Hebrew word. The word for walked around really means to be aimless and it means to be careless It means to be directionless. It means to just be kind of like, whatever, wandering. David is so meaningless, aimless. He's just up there. He's doing nothing. He's purposeless. The rest of the Israelite army is out doing something. But David is just aimless, wandering around. And from the roof, he saw a woman bathing. The woman was very beautiful. I want to, again, before, before we go any farther, I want to ask you a question. Who is on the roof? David. When I was a kid, I remember hearing this story told to me kind of this way. Here's David, and he's wandering around on his roof. And here's Bathsheba, and she's also on her roof, and she's bathing right out in the open. Everybody can see what she's doing. And the the picture that was portrayed to me when I was a child is that here is David, honorable, noble David, man after God's own heart. He's just trying to do the right thing with his life. He's just sent a bunch of people off to war and he's so worried about how they're doing. And now he's wandering around on the roof and he's just, he's in anguish. He can't sleep. He's in anguish and so he's on the roof. He's probably praying. David is so noble. He's probably praying. And there's that seductress over there. You know, out in the middle of the open, just naked in the middle of the night. And she can see David up on the top of his roof. And she's got a lower roof because she's not in the palace. But she knows what she's doing. And she's just there trying to seduce David. Oh, she's so evil, so wicked. I kid you not, the portrayal in my Uh, background was not entirely blaming Bathsheba, but we're talking like 80-20. 
We're talking like Bathsheba was this seductress and David was just this. He's just a guy. I mean, he's just a normal guy. He's got his feelings. He's got his eyes. And you can't really blame him. It's her fault for being so indecent. Now, we're going to see in just a moment how the narrator proves to us that this woman Bathsheba was righteous in the whole scenario, did absolutely nothing wrong. And so that whole narrative that I grew up with, that it was somehow either 50-50 or David was only 20% responsible and Bathsheba was 80% responsible, all of that narrative is completely undone when you literally read the actual words in the text. Because David is on his roof and he is seeing this woman bathing somewhere. And you need to know that if you live in a society that doesn't have indoor plumbing... The only way to do bathing is outside. Unless you're doing a small kind of bathing, like a ceremonial washing. If you're doing a ceremonial washing, you can have a basin in your house, and you can do something in your house with a basin of water. If it's ceremonial, if it's a cleansing washing, then you might need to go to one of the nearby pools, like the Pool of Siloam in Jerusalem, which could be seen from David's palace, or something along those lines. But to be bathing outside was not abnormal in the slightest. In fact, for a woman to be bathing outside at night might be an indication that she was trying to be modest. Let's just keep reading and see what happens next. In verse 3, And David (laughs) sent someone to find out about her. See, there's that word again. David's exercising his power to get something for himself. He sent someone to find out about her. The man said, she's Bathsheba, the daughter of Eliam and the wife of Uriah the Hittite. Now I know you don't know those names. And that's because usually when we're reading the names in the Bible, we just kind of skip over the names. We read the name, then we just kind of jump on to the next one. And we're by, before long, we've just covered a whole bunch of names and we don't get them all in our mind. There's a list of names at the end of the book of 2 Samuel that you're probably going to be just reading over with me in a couple weeks. It's all the way in chapter 23. It's this list of names. And, and it's weird because the name list starts with these are David's 30 mighty men. And then the very end, it says there were 37 of them. And so already you're like, this is weird. There's supposed to be 30 mighty men. But then the end, it says there's 37. And you're like, what's going on with that? And so you just kind of joke about it. You're like, okay, so it's a list of names. I want to show you two of the names in David's list. From 2 Samuel chapter 23, verse 24 and 20, excuse me, 24 and 34 and 39. Among the 30 were Asahel, the brother of Joab, Elhanan, the son of Dodo, that's an awesome name, by the way, of Bethlehem, Eliphalet, I like that name too, son of Abishai, the Maakathite, Eliam, son of Ahithophel, the Gilonite, and Uriah, the Hittite. There were 37 in all. You need to know that Eliam is in the list of David's 30 mighty men. And you need to know that Uriah was the last credit on the screen when the cast of characters goes. All the 30 men. And then at the very end, and Uriah the Hittite. Now, Eliam and Uriah. We just read them. Eliam is Bathsheba's dad. 
Uriah is Bathsheba's husband. David has been fighting with a small ragtag group of people for probably a decade or more as he's been on the run. And these 30 mighty men have been surrounding him with such loyalty that there is one scene, in fact, where they absolutely risk their lives to just get David a glass of water. These people love David. They are so, so absolutely loyal to David. They would never do anything except for fight to the death for David. And David, I kid you not, had to know every one of their names and families. Because if you spend 12 years with a small army and 30 of them step up to the forefront as mighty warriors with extraordinary exploits, don't you think you would know the names of those 30 top men? Don't you think you would know the names of those 30 men, maybe their families? Don't you think perhaps Uriah, the last name on the list of 30, whose father-in-law is another one of your guys, whose wife is insanely beautiful, don't you think you would already know that entire family tree? Yeah. When this guy comes back to David and he says, oh, that's Bathsheba, David knows the whole story. He doesn't need to know that's the daughter of Eliam. He doesn't need to know that's the wife of Uriah. He knows the whole story. And so what he does next, verse 5, 4, then David sent messengers to get her. She came to him, and he slept with her. Now she was purifying herself from her monthly uncleanness. Then she went back home. This is weird. Verse 4. She came to David. See, she's willing. It's consent, right? She came to David. Actually, the narrator does a very important thing here. The word he uses here for came when it says that she came to David is exactly the same word that we're going to see in a few minutes when David asks Uriah to come to him from the war, and it says Uriah came to David. This word come is not the word for consent. This is the word for obedience. There is a very big difference. There is loyalty to your king who has the life of your husband and father in his hands, and you show up because he summoned you, and there is a whole manner of other things. Now, listen, there is no other way to see this except David exercising power and authority to go and get a woman he already knows is taken by someone who's one of his loyal, loyal soldiers, one of his closest allies and perhaps friends, and brings her to him and he sleeps with her. The best modern word for that is the word rape. Because the power dynamic between David and Bathsheba is not like this. It's like this. And the power dynamic between the two of them means that there is zero way Bathsheba can say no. And in this situation, the narrator has just done something that for you and me, right over our head. But for the people in David's day, this made all the difference. Did you see that statement in parentheses? 
She had just cleansed herself from her monthly uncleanness. She had just purified herself from her monthly uncleanness. You see that? You know, what that says to us is a number of things. Number one, it tells us that Bathsheba was going through this process of purification in response to the law of Moses. You need to know Bathsheba doesn't come from a Jewish family. Uriah was a Hittite. Eliam was also from another area. It called him a Gilonite, whatever a Gilonite is. But she was not from a Jewish family. And yet, she has just obeyed a Jewish law. Because see, Moses made this law. He, he wrote it down after God gave it to him. Moses said, okay, here's, here's how it works. When a woman has her period, what she needs to do is consider herself unclean for the entire time she's got her period. And then what we're going to do is we're going to count seven days from the start of her period. And at the end of those seven days, she needs to perform a ritual cleansing process, a ritual purification process. And then not only will she be clean, but everyone around her can consider her clean. And the things that she touches and the people that she's with, they will also be ceremonially clean. And so this is what Moses' law said, that when the period begins, you count seven days. And at the end of the seven days, you do your ritual cleansing. However, what's weird is that the very next paragraph says that sometimes a woman is going to have some discharge that lasts longer than the normal amount of time for her period. And it doesn't give us any other guidelines in there. But it says sometimes it's going to last longer. And if it lasts longer, what you're supposed to do is wait until the blood flow stops and then start counting seven days. And so you count seven days from the last time there was any blood. And then at the end of those seven days, you do the same purification right and everything. So that means if Bathsheba was having one of her normal times, then she would would have started at this one point in time and counted seven days and performed her ritual cleansing, ritual cleansing inside the house, ritual cleansing, small amount of water, ceremonial washing. She would have done that at the end of day seven, which would have put her in her cycle at day seven. Or if she was a person who was trying to be as cautious as possible with the law of God, she might have waited until all of the bleeding was done and then counted seven days. After all, her husband was off to war anyway. And then count seven days, which would have put her between day seven and 14. Let me list off for you just a couple bullet points from this whole little scenario. Number one, we need to take home that Bathsheba was honorable. A non-Jewish person willfully submitting to the law of Moses. Willfully submitting to the law that God had given. She was honorable, and the narrator wants us to know that. Number two, she was definitely not pregnant. When this whole story starts, she was not pregnant, and that's key for the rest of the story. And uh, that means that... Um, what happens later is definitely David's, okay? She was not pregnant. Number three, this was David's best chance. If he ever wanted to be with Bathsheba, this was the best opportunity he was going to get. Because at day seven, she is cleansed, but not ovulating. Problem is at day 14, she would be ovulating, 
And so this is David's window. And he's like, if I'm going to use my power to keep this thing in the secret zone, I need to make sure I take hold of this opportunity as soon as humanly possible. How many nights before this night had he gone on to his roof? I don't know. I don't know if this was premeditated. I don't know if this was preplanned. The narrator doesn't tell us that. What the narrator tells us is that this was the prime opportunity for David to think, ah, now's my chance. And so he does. He brings her to him. He sleeps with her. And then verse 5 is so powerful and so amazing. Verse 5 says this, the woman conceived, and here's our verb sent word to David saying, I am pregnant. Bathsheba in this moment loses her name, but she gains power over David. Do you see this? This is the moment where the power has just been flipped. Now she is the one sending the word to David. The send word is going to show up a number more times as we continue on through this story, but I just have to emphasize the narrator is doing such a brilliant job to tell us in this moment, David has been proven to be powerless because now the power is in the woman. By removing her name, it's even more stark how powerless David himself is in this situation. This whole story, I got to tell you, it just... It just absolutely breaks my heart. But let's keep going because it gets far worse. Verse 6. So David sent this word to Joab. Send me Uriah the Hittite. And Joab sent him to David. When Uriah came to him, and here it is again, obedience. Uriah has come. When Uriah came to him, David asked him how Joab was, how the soldiers were, how's the war going? Gee, David, if you were here, you would know. But he doesn't do that. He doesn't do that. He gives him a good report. Then David said to Uriah, go down to your house and wash your feet. A very weird euphemism for yes. Wash your feet. And then, so Uriah left the palace and a gift from the king was sent after him. And Uriah slept at the entrance to the palace with all his master's servants and did not go down to his house. David was told Uriah did not go home. So he asked Uriah, haven't you just come home from a military campaign? Why didn't you go home? Uriah said to David, the ark and Israel and Judah are staying in tents, parentheses, and David is in his palace. And my commander Joab and my Lord's men are camped in the open country, parentheses, and David is in his palace. How could I go to my house to eat and drink and make love with my wife, in parentheses, as you have done? He doesn't know all that. As surely as you live, I will not do such a thing. How honorable Uriah is in this moment is unfathomable to me. Then David said to him, Stay here one more day, and tomorrow I will 
send you back. So Uriah remained in Jerusalem that day and the next at David's invitation. He ate and drank with him, and David made him drunk. But in the evening, Uriah went out to sleep on his mat among his master's servants. He did not go home. Drunk Uriah is more honorable than sober David. And in the morning, David wrote a letter to Joab and sent it with Uriah. In it, he wrote, put Uriah out in front where the fighting is fiercest. Then withdraw from him so he will be struck down and die. So while Joab had the city under siege, he put Uriah at a place where he knew the strongest defenders were. When the men of the city came out and fought against Joab, some of the men in David's army fell. Moreover, Uriah the Hittite died. What happens next is Joab sends a message back to David. He's like, David, all these people are dead. He says to the messenger, messenger, go and tell David what we did. Tell him all these people are dead. And then at the end of your message, say these words. And moreover, Uriah the Hittite is dead. Because the messenger's worried about giving a bad report to King David. And Joab is like, trust me, take this message. He goes, he gives it to David, and he says, moreover, Uriah the Hittite is dead. David hears the message, and he's like, okay, you go tell Joab that sometimes we lose good people, and it's all right. But at the very end of the story, skip to the very end, verse 22, it says, when Uriah's wife heard that her husband was dead, she mourned for him. After the time of mourning was over, David had her brought to his house, and she became his wife, had her brought and she became his wife and bore him a son, but the thing David had done displeased the Lord. There is no other way to understand this passage than what is written in the text. The thing who David had done displeased the Lord. The thing David did displeased the Lord. The reason this whole scenario is so important for us to understand is that for the longest time, I was in an environment, myself, I was in a, in a world environment, Christian environment, where certain religious people could do no wrong. Now listen, I was raised to know that David sinned in this situation. There's a whole psalm, Psalm 41, 51, that talks about David's sin. I knew this was David's sin, but the sin was always categorized to me as the sin of adultery. Here's David, he sees a pretty woman, they sleep together. Oh, that's a big bad thing, you know, that's a problem. But what goes on here is that depending on how you look at the whole situation, it's easier or less easy to give David a pass for how evil his actions were. On the one hand, his actions are, oh no, pretty woman. Yeah, I understand. I get it, David. I get it. I get it. I understand. I mean, it was wrong. It was wrong. But man, I understand. But if you see it the way the narrator is trying to depict it, David, murderer in response to rape. Horrific. And the reason this is so important is that it still happens today. In the last few years, it has absolutely broken my heart how often you hear of another man 
who has exploited some unknown powerless woman. And the stories come out, and the reactions are always the same. Depending on who the man is, the reactions are always, oh, he'd never do that. That woman must be lying. It must, it must, be, a, must be a false operation. It must be, it must be just fraudulent. It's, people are trying to attack this good man for all the good work he's doing. The narrative happens the same way over and over and over again. And it is not outside the church alone. In Christianity, over the last few years, I have heard name after name after name of people who are revered by the Christian community and yet have this massive stain on their lives. And they keep it secret for a time. They, they take some people down with them or they, they knock other people down to keep themselves propped up. But the names of men show up time and time again. Man, I'm tempted to just list off a bunch of names right now that are on my mind, but I'm going to refrain for just, I don't know, someday maybe. But the thing is that we have heard it over and over. In fact, just this last year, a couple months ago, the Southern Baptist Convention published a report that they had commissioned from an independent agency. And this independent agency had reviewed the Southern Baptists, and they found out that there were over 700 cases in the last, like, 20 years, 700 cases in the Southern Baptist denomination alone of pastors and other church leaders who had sexually exploited some member of the congregation, and the whole thing was squashed every time, over 700 of those times. And it is because we have somehow got it into our mind that a little adultery here or a little adultery there, well, that's just what men do. And what we have failed to realize is that David, what he does here is abusing his power. Because he has power and he uses it for himself. Now there's only two rays of hope in this story. After how tragic it is, there are just two rays of hope in this story. Number one, it's cold comfort, but this is not new. At least what David went through is something that has gone throughout the centuries. And so we, we need to find a way to fix it, but at least this story isn't that outlandish. But here's the real comfort, a little bit, just a tiny ray of hope. And it is that David responds well. Jump to chapter 12, verse 1. The Lord sent... Oh, I love it. Who's doing the sending now? It's God himself. Finally, the power is back in the right hands. Are you with me? The Lord sent Nathan to David. Nathan, you go to David. David, I've got a message for you. When he came to him, he said, There were two men in a certain town, one rich and the other poor. The rich man had a very large number of sheep and cattle, but the poor man had nothing except one little ewe lamb he had bought. He raised it, and it grew up with him and his children. It shared his food, drank from his cup, and even slept in his arms. It was like a daughter to him. Hopefully you can already begin to picture the tenderness of this. 
Now a traveler came to the rich man, but the rich man refrained from taking one of his own sheep or cattle to prepare a meal for the traveler who had come to him. Instead, he took the ewe lamb that belonged to the poor man and prepared it for the one who had come to him. David burned with anger against the man and said to Nathan, as surely as the Lord lives, the man who did this must die. He must pay for that lamb four times over because he did such a thing and had no pity. And then David said, Nathan said to David, you are the man. This is what the Lord, the God of Israel says. I anointed you king of Israel and I delivered you from the hand of Saul. I gave your master's house to you and your master's wives into your arms. I gave you all Israel and Judah. And if all of this had been too little, I would have given you even more. Why did you despise the word of the Lord by doing what is evil in his eyes? You struck down Uriah the Hittite with the sword and took his wife to be your own. You killed him with the sword of the Ammonites. Now, therefore, the sword will never depart from your house because you despised me and took the wife of Uriah the Hittite to be your own. This is what the Lord says. Out of your own household, I'm going to bring calamity on you. Before your very eyes, I will take your wives and give them to the one who is close to you, and he will sleep with your wives in broad daylight. You did it in secret, but I will do this thing in broad daylight before all Israel. Man, I just, I'm so proud of Nathan. (laughs) I'm so proud. That guy's got guts. I mean, he's going to the king, the king who just killed someone for revealing this thing, for possibly revealing this thing. And here's Nathan, and he goes up to the king because God told him. God said, listen, that thing that guy did was wrong. And I'm going to tell you what he did, and now you're going to have to, and Nathan's like, okay, fine, God, I'll go tell him. And Nathan is willing to go ahead and speak the truth to the literal power, taking his own life in his hands. What is going through through Nathan's mind? I don't know. But for some unknown reason, David, unlike every modern leader we have seen, fall into the same situation. Unlike every leader who went before him, David, for some unknown reason, says this. Verse 13. David said to Nathan, I have sinned against the Lord. That's where the sentence ended. We've heard it time and time again. Someone is caught. Someone has abused their power. And their answer is, well, I did this, and 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 these are my reasons, and these are my other reasons, and I did this other thing, and I did this other thing, and you know, and and these are my reasons, and I had good reasons for this thing, and this is why I did this thing, and I, I made some, no one's perfect, I made some mistakes, but you know, I did, and, and David, unlike everyone we have ever heard in our lives in modern day, I have sinned against the Lord, period, stop talking. Oh, oh, by the way, He doesn't mention Bathsheba, right? Has Bathsheba done anything wrong? Is the man in the situation blaming the woman? Is that happening here? No. 
This is not even Adam and Eve in the garden. Eve eats the apple, gives it to Adam, or whatever fruit it is, gives it to Adam. Adam eats it, and then God shows up, and Adam's like, it's the woman you gave me. She's the one who gave me the fruit. That's why I ate it. David's not doing that either. David is doing the most noble thing humanly possible when confronted with a sin, and it is to shut your mouth after saying, I did it. This is what we mean when we say the word confession. Confession is a word that says, I agree with the truth. You said the truth, I'm agreeing with it. You said I did this thing, you're right, I did it. It was a sin, no one else was involved. It was only me, and I sinned against God. He doesn't mention he sinned against Bathsheba. He doesn't mention he sinned against Uriah, and I find that just slightly sad. But I, want, I don't want him to speak any more words. I'm happy with the fact that he recognizes sinning against a human being is sinning against God. And David's like, yeah, I've sinned. No more words. At some other point in time, David will use some words to explain what went on in his heart here. It's in Psalm 51. And I'm going to read some selections from Psalm 51. It says at the very beginning, the heading that David put into the psalm says, For the director of music, a psalm of David, when the prophet Nathan came to him after David had committed adultery with Bathsheba. We know the context. David wrote it down in the book of Psalms for everyone, for all time, to know that David had violated Bathsheba. David wants you to know his sin. That's called confession. He says, Have mercy on me, O God. According to your unfailing love, according to your great compassion, blot out my transgressions, wash away all my iniquity, cleanse me from my sin. For I know my transgressions and my sin is always before me. Against you, you only have I sinned and done what is evil in your sight. So you are right in your verdict and justified when you judge. Skip to 10. He says, create in me a pure heart, O God. Renew a steadfast spirit within me. Do not cast me from your presence or take your Holy Spirit from me. Restore to me the joy of your salvation and grant me a willing spirit to sustain me. And skip to 16. You do not delight in sacrifice or I would bring it. You do not take pleasure in burnt offerings. My sacrifice, O God, is a broken spirit, a broken and contrite heart, O God, you will not despise. David says three things that are our model for confession. Here they are. Number one, I've sinned, period. Admitting that he is responsible. No other blames, no other things, no other explanations, no descriptions of how beautiful she was and how weak he was. It's just, I've sinned, period. Number two, he says, it's my fault. This is important. So many times I will say, I sinned, but it's someone else's fault. I sinned, but someone else made me do it, or someone else led me to do it, or some other circumstance. It was an accident. It was a mistake. No. David says, I sinned, and it was my fault. He says, I've been sinful my entire life. I've been sinful my whole life. My transgressions are always before me. God, it is my fault. And number three, he says, have mercy and change me. God, just don't kill me even though I deserve it. But then make me different. What Nathan says to David next, verse 13 again. 
David said to Nathan, I have sinned against the Lord. Nathan replied, the Lord has taken away your sin. You are not going to die. But because by doing this, you've shown utter contempt for the Lord, the son born to you will die. Now I'm going to narrate for you quickly the rest of the story. Um, There's a son that's born, and the son becomes ill. God causes the son to become ill. While the son is sick, the baby, while the infant is sick, David fasts and he prays. He doesn't eat anything. He doesn't do anything. He's just fasting and praying. And then he's just so in distress, which of course indicates that David is choosing to love this child that caused all this other hassle for him, right? But he's, he's choosing to love. He's, he's praying. He's fasting. He's worried about this child. And then we hear the story, the child dies. And the attendants around David are like, oh no, if David was this upset while the child was still alive, how bad is David going to be when we tell him the child is dead? And so they're like standing off at a distance and David looks at them and he says, what's the matter? Is the child dead? And they say, yeah. And David gets up, takes a shower. He goes, he spends some time worshiping God. And then he goes, he starts eating dinner. And everybody's like, what's the deal? And David says, well, when the child was sick, I was begging God to let him live. But once he's dead, God has made his choice. And now it's time for me to move on. God has done his judgment. Listen, I don't know why God chose this particular judgment. I don't know why God does this. I don't know why this is the punishment. But this is David saying, I'm going to accept it. I'm going to worship God for who he is in the midst of this whole thing. This was my fault. God can do whatever it is that God wants to do in response to what I've done. And then, this is sad, bittersweet, and still beautiful. The way the story ends. Skip all the way to verse 24. Then David comforted his wife Bathsheba, and he went to her and made love to her. She gave birth to a son, and they named him Solomon. The Lord loved him, and because the Lord loved him, he sent word through Nathan the prophet to name him Jedidiah, which means the Lord loves him. And Solomon becomes the great king after David. It's an amazing story of redemption, how God can take an absolutely tragic situation and turn it around, how God can do something beautiful in response to something evil. God is always looking at redeeming a thing that is bad. He's not making the bad thing happen so he can have a better redemption, but he is always looking to take the bad thing that's happened and flip it all around and do something awesome with it. And then, just to finish the story, meanwhile, Joab fought against Rabbah of the Ammonites and captured the royal citadel. Joab then sent messengers to David. Who's sending? Now it's Joab. Joab sent messengers to David. I fought against Rabbah, and I've taken its water supply. Now muster the rest of the troops and besiege the city and capture it. Otherwise, I will take the city, and it will be named after me. And David finally wakes up. Joab is not the king. David is the king. If someone is supposed to capture the city, it's not Joab. It's supposed to be David. David wakes up. So David mustered the entire army, and he went. Finally, we get the verb for David. Went. 
David went to Rabbah and attacked and captured it. David took the crown from the king's head and it was placed on his own head. It weighed a talent of gold and it was set with precious stones. David took a great quantity of plunder from the city and brought out the people who were there, consigning them to labor with saws and with iron picks and axes. He made them work at brick making. David did all this to the Ammonite towns. Then he and his entire army returned to Jerusalem. And I, I don't have time to talk about, you know, the morals of, of how they handled slavery and pillaging back then. All I can tell you is that David is finally re-engaging as the king and it's like, yes, yes, finally we have gone from the went to the sent back to the went and David is king doing the king stuff again at the end of the story. The narrator wants you to know how deep, dark, and dungy was this whole thing at the bottom of David's descent. And how glorious God can turn it around on the other side. So I'm going to give you three things to take home with you. Three things to take home with you. Number one, to the powerless. Some of you feel powerless. Some of you are powerless. Some of you here in the room feel powerless. Some of you will be powerless at some point in time. Those of you watching online, powerlessness. It's everywhere. To the powerless. God has seen. And he's still sending prophets. Doesn't mean God's going to snap his finger and Uriah's going to come back to life. Doesn't mean God is going to undo all the other consequences of whatever this has happened. What it means is God is still paying attention. The thing David did displeased God. And he sent a prophet. And God is still sending courageous people to speak truth to people in power. God is still sending those prophets. And if you are powerless, hopefully that can encourage you. What about if you are powerful? To the powerful today, I say, you might be a chapter 11 David. It is no question that David in chapter 11 is morally bankrupt. And that could be you. If you have power, check it all the time. Because all it takes is one day to send when you should have gone, to take you down a path where it becomes more about you than about why you have the power in the first place. And so for all of us who have power, to any of you who have power in any way, you might be a chapter 11 David. Watch out. But to any of you who have sinned, to me, to all of us, any of us who have sinned, I implore you. Please, be a chapter 12, David. Be a chapter 12, David. A David who admits wrong, receives consequence, worships God no matter what, and makes the situation right as well as you can. This is a horrific tale of descent into darkness and a beautiful rise on the other side. Thanks for listening to this message from Lafayette Community Church. We are all about helping you live the life you were made to live. God made you. God loves you. And His plans for you are perfect. So if you are anywhere near Lafayette, Indiana, join us this weekend at one of our worship gatherings. And wherever you are, check us out online at lafayettecommunitychurch.com.